2: Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hello and welcome to The Napoleonicist. I've got something really quite special for you today. I know I say that quite a lot, but this one, um, well, I introduce this guy as one of my favorite humans ever. He's just genuinely one of those really nice people in the world, Um, but also one of the most interesting people I know in terms of the breadth of his knowledge on incredible things. Folks may remember that quite a while back now, I was joined by Kit Chapman as part of a much wider debate on the most significant Invention of the Napoleonic era. And Kit dropped us a little teaser when he said that the Napoleonic era was pretty much uh, an era that witnessed a lot of the birth of some of the modern scientific things that we associate as being normal today. It's taken me a long time to follow him up on that. I'm delighted to say that Dr. Kit Chapman, a science historian, science journalist, author of Super Heavy and Racing Green, all round nice guy, uh, just A hilarious individual, if you've ever heard him down the pub on History Hack, is joining me once again on the Napoleonicist. Kit, welcome back. How are you doing, my friend?
1: I'm doing very well, thank you. Thank you so much for having me back. I love talking about science history and dorking out, so we've got a lot to cover because the Napoleonic era is, as you say, the birth of some of the major sciences we have today
2: it's I mean you sent me a little list because I'm going to be completely frank with listeners I'm a dunce when it comes to this I was no great shakes when it came to my GCSEs I just about scraped through um and then I ran away screaming apart from biology I could I could stick biology because that sort of made sense but chemistry and physics it was all just this kind of thing of I can't see it it doesn't make any sense um so you're gonna kind of (laughs) help us through my kind of dunciness. but some of the things you sent me um just to give people some teasers we've got chemistry we've got electricity the steam engine computing even biology photography this sounds pretty mental before we dive into some of those specifics i just have a very general question which is about sort of where science is at and how it works in terms of development during this period because there's there's sort of two sort of bookends to this i feel there's Newton and the famous incident with the apple and Newsom being associated with universities in Cambridge and all the right. rest of it and then you've got sort of the end point that we know today which is very much you know science being driven by um, inventions usually funded through large corporations and associated with again with universities or big research institutions but there's also this kind of middle point which is that kind of nutty professor caricature that some people have of sort of people hurling together concoctions in you know, their, their cellars somewhere and just sort of stumbling across inventions. So how does science work in terms of development during this period? Is it a mix of all of those things?
1: It is. It's, it's, it's exactly that, because it's, it's a transition from a period we call the Enlightenment, which is essentially when nobles can afford to do science as a hobby, and so you see lots of people they're, they're buying microscopes. So you mentioned Newton, um, Newton's mainly in the in the 1600s, uh, and he and a guy called Robert Hooke. Um, Newton writes a book uh, called um, Principia, which is discussing all of his physics ideas. Robert Hooke writes Micrographia, which is about uh, sort of actually looking at things under the microscope, and that gets people interested in science. And so you get this era of gentlemen scientists who are just trying stuff out. Um, And then we're going to talk about some of the people that are involved, but you'll find that there are reverends, there are aristocrats, there are essentially pharmacists, and they're all doing the work independently. There's no such thing as a proper scientist. There's no job of he is a scientist at this point in time. So everyone's doing something as well as that. Even people who are, are sort of doing predominantly scientific research, usually they're involved in the military, for example. I mean, Charles Augustine de Coulomb. Um, is a great example of that he's one of the pioneers of sort of electricity, essentially, Um, and he is a captain in the French army he's an engineer. So everyone is doing something other than science, and this is where you start seeing the transition to what we think of as scientists, this is really where people start moving and becoming scientists.
2: And is the Industrial Revolution a symptom or a cause of that transition? I mean, you talk about how we've got the Age of Enlightenment in the mix. Is it all kind of a a little bit of a messy picture or is there a kind of a dividing moment?
1: It it really is a very messy picture because also bear in mind that it's happening at different speeds in different countries. The Industrial Revolution isn't something that happens overnight in all of Europe. Uh, Predominantly, it starts off in, in sort of the north of England because that's where they're looking at doing wool and it moves down in those sort of waves and there's pockets and people are trying to solve local problems and they spawn other ideas. So you'll see that with Humphrey Davy, he's he's Cornish. I mean, he doesn't almost, he almost doesn't think of himself as British, he is Cornish. Um, and so a lot of the elements that he discovers are basically things that he's been looking at in mines. Um, potassium is a great example of that. It comes from potash. So that's where we get the name potassium. So. <laughs> there's all this kind of solving of problems. And as people solve the problems, the picture starts knitting together. Um, So the industrial revolution is a symptom of it, it's also a cause of it because it's actually driving that change and encouraging people to think of things differently.
2: Okay, let's start talking about some specifics then. Um, Chemistry, you sent me a note saying, look, (laughs) this thing is literally invented during the Napoleonic era. Talk us through it talk us through it okay
1: so chemistry prior to the napoleonic era most people who, who are doing chemistry are probably thinking themselves more along the lines of alchemists i mean isaac newton certainly considered himself an alchemist and that doesn't necessarily mean that they're looking at astrology charts all that kind of stuff there was some very good science done by alchemists and um, they just disguised it so they would write you know um, pull the pull the, the the child of the dragon from the cauldron they just mean get the iron out of the furnace you know, they're t- they're t- but how our universe is constructed. And that's really what we get to chemistry. So physics is how the universe interacts with each other. Biology is the study of the physical stuff that we do. And chemistry is how it all comes together. And we only discover the building blocks of that, the basic rules in the Napoleonic era. And for me, the main guy that, le- I mean, there's a couple of people who are cited as the father of modern chemistry. you have got Jan-Zak Basilius in Sweden, um, but for me, it's Antoine Lavoisier. And Lavoisier is a French noble. Um, he actually works with his wife, uh, Marianne Poirot. Um, he married her when she was 13, but that was pretty normal for a French aristocrat in those days. And again, he's not just a scientist, although he likes to think of himself as that, he's also a tax collector. Um, so the reason he gets killed during the French Revolution, uh, spoilers, um, is that tobacconists are angry at him because they were he was stopping them watering down and adulterating their products and so he gets uh, he gets killed as a member of the nobility. But he's looking at all kinds of scientific problems, and he is the guy that decides I'm going to put together a list of the basic things that can't be reduced any further. Um, so he constructs this uh, this, this basic essentially uh, he calls it the elemental treaties of chemistry, seventeen eighty nine. And he doesn't get it quite right. He thinks that light is an element. He thinks that calories are an element, but he also thinks like iron is an element as well. He gets that correct. Um, And this is also based on his work sort of 10 years earlier, because as I mentioned, you've got these multiple people doing multiple things. And Marianne has a skill that he doesn't have. She can read English. There's a guy called Joseph Priestley. He is a priest, um, which suits his name, I guess, in England. And he comes up with this idea called deflagostated air. Now, at the time, there was a thing called phlegoston theory. And the idea was that phlogiston was this magical substance that when you uh, burn something, that's what produced the fire. And in fact, calories was this, calor was this substance that created fire. Now, Antoine Lavoisier didn't buy this at all, but he was fascinated by this, this air that Joseph Priestley was claiming that he made. He got some, some water and he was producing some strange air bubbling off. Now, of course, we're talking about hydrogen and oxygen. We know that air, air, you know, water is H2O. And so Lavoisier comes up with the name oxygen. I mean, that is 1778. So that is Napoleonic era. So when I talk about discovering elements, I'm not talking about obscure ones. I'm talking about the big building blocks here. Anyway, he puts together this elemental treatise. And it's the first time anyone attempts to actually list the elements. Um, so I think that's sort of the father of chemistry. The other thing that he really does, um, and this is again, part of the French revolution is they see it as an opportunity to shake up the scientific establishment. So in 1791, the French uh, revolutionaries put together a panel of experts, and that includes people like Coulomb who I've mentioned, it includes Lavoisier, and they come up with the metric system. So if you have ever used anything in the metric system, that is from the French revolution. So we're talking smacking in Napoli um, Do you want me to move on to another one?
2: <laughs> um, let me just pause for a second and and gather my head. So effectively without Lavoisier, we wouldn't have had the foundations of what goes on to become the periodic table because nobody would have worked out the list of elements to exactly. categorize.
1: So the, the periodic table is, is, the, is the, if you think about taking the elements and basically putting them in atomic weight roughly, sort of leaving gaps and it creates this sort of map of, of where the elements are. That's what Deluche I mean, Mendeleev of Dalton does it in 1869, so we're talking, you know, another sort of 70, 80 years from what Lavoisier is doing. And he's not the only person that does it, other people put together lists that are pretty good as well, but Lavoisier is the starting point there.
2: And linked to that is John Dalton, An Atomic Theory, right? Talk us through that.
1: So John Dalton is a fascinating character. He's uh, a, an English scientist, and his, um, he was born 1766 um, and his interest is colorblindness. Um, so colorblindness is often also referred to as Daltonism because he's the guy that does the first initial research. on But the big contribution comes in 1807 and he comes up with this thing called atomic theory. Now, prior to that, no one really knew how the universe was constructed. Everyone knew that there were these basic things that Lavoisier were talking about, but how does it all knit together? And Dalton comes up with three rules. The first is that um, everything is made up of these tiny particles called atoms. Uh, if you have a basic element, all of the atoms are identical in it, and how the atoms knit together and join with other things to form molecules, that's how you get different items, and that's how we get the material world. That is 1807, so that's what one year before the Battle of Wagram, I think. So I remember my vague i'm not a, a military story i'm trying to two years before Black back from, okay um two years after Austerlitz, two years after. yeah there
2: we go i've got it. slap back. bang in the middle
1: um, slap bang in the middle um so that's what so that is just emerging and that's incredible because before that we hadn't even really considered how the world was structured together and that leads us on to what happens in the victorian era where people start sort of looking at how things are constructed there is a boom period where we suddenly get loads and loads of elements discovered. So prior to, um, prior to about 17, sort of 1760, 1770, when we start getting oxygen and we get nitrogen in 1772, that's from Niter, um, you know, which I'm sure you're familiar with the French word there. Um, prior to that, we've only had one element in the past thousand years that were diso- was discovered. And that was by uh, a crazy guy called Hennig Brand, um, who, for Reason's best known to himself was trying to turn his own urine into gold and by accident discovered phosphorus. <laughs> I mean, that's a story unto itself, but it is not Napoleonic. And before that, we were just stuck with the stuff that the, the ancients knew about. So we had copper and we had gold and silver. And suddenly we get this boom. Um, so we have chlorine coming up, we have nitrogen, we have oxygen. Um, Basilius, who I mentioned, um, interesting guy. He invents lots of words like catalysis and polymer and isomer uh, you know, scientific terms. Um, but he discovers lithium and silicon and selenium and thorium and cerium. Um, and you've got Humphrey Davy who's working and he's discovering potassium, sodium, calcium, uh, magnesium, boron, strontium, which is the only element named after somewhere in England by the way, i oh, sorry Scotland. it's a uh, British Isles. Um, it's named after a tiny village called strontium in Scotland. Um, barium even. So, all of these elements that people are suddenly discovering that's largely because they're starting to think of the world in a different way, Uh, and also because we have this other thing which you mentioned earlier, we have electricity, so people start doing electrolysis experiments and suddenly they can actually separate out the rocks and discover different bits. But, the reason that we have this boom period in the 19th century, this this incredible age of Victorian discovery, the building blocks are created in the Napoleonic era.
2: How much credibility do these people have when they just sort of turn around and go, hey, guys, I've just found this new building block of the universe. Do people sort of go, "Uh, um, yeah, all right, mate, you know, pull us, pull another one, you know?
1: Um, So there is a lot of competing theories. Um, You're absolutely right. And this is still a period where people believe, I mean, I I mentioned Barsilius believes in something called vitalism, this idea of sort of the body having a soul. Um, Miasma theory is the most common theory for spreading disease. No one but germ theory won't come along for another sort of 40 odd years. Um, And so there are people that just go, no, this isn't right. But there are people who are right so often they build up credibility. And Humphrey Davy is a classic example of that because he can back up what he's saying with demonstrations. Um, One of the things that he does is he starts using um, nitrous oxide, which is laughing gas. Uh, and he's getting people high on their supply. You know, this is, he, is, he is one of the sort of the first sort of drug dealers in terms of just, he goes around parties with a bagpipe they're giving people a, a little whiff of, uh, of laughing gas. Um, and he starts up a series of lectures as well. He's, he's one of the, the main figures at the start of the Royal Institution. And so he's giving these lectures to the public for the first time, it's not just the, the posh guys, it's not just these aristocrats anymore, he's bringing in everybody. And that means that he's able to. Um, there's a bookbinder, uh, he's working in London, who has no education whatsoever. Um, and he starts writing down all of Davy's notes. And Davy gets injured in a lab explosion. And he's looking around for someone to sort of help him out with some stuff. And he comes across this guy who has literally copied down all of his lectures. He thinks, I'll give him a shot. And the guy turns out to be Michael Faraday, who is arguably the greatest uh, scientist of the Victorian era. Um, so all of this is this happening. Um, we have, I mean, one of the things that one of the people that is listening to Humphrey Davy give lectures is a very young Mary Shelley. Um, we know that she attends it. And then when you have the year of no summer after the Mount Chambora volcanic explosion in 15, 1815, she's stuck in, um, in Italy with her husband. They have a writing competition and she's thinking about all of these science. She's thinking about electricity and bolts and, and all of this kind of stuff. And so, of course, she comes up with Frankenstein. So we have science for the first time blending into um, to fiction. And of course, there's amazing literature throughout the Napoleonic era. I mean, we have Jane Austen, for example, but this is the first time that we actually have science fiction. It's invented in the Napoleonic era.
2: This is just incredible. I knew this was gonna be brilliant. I absolutely <laughs> knew this was gonna be brilliant. Um, I'm gonna stay with that kind of thing that you're tapping into there about electricity. Um, this is something that I've always considered absolutely balmy, the way that you can just flick a switch And a light comes on and, you know, it it all just sort of works and you you plug your battery (laughs) charger into the mains and it's genuinely it's like magic in my head because it all just works off electrons and things and you just go, okay, it works. I'm just going to accept it. Um, Talk us through how they come up with this concept or, or become aware of this concept and start to work to harness it.
1: I mean, electricity is a really interesting thing because they're working with it, but they don't really know how it works. Uh, I mean, the idea of the electron is, you know, a hundred years away, we are, we are not there. Um, what, what they do is they can, they can observe things. And so slightly before the Napoleon era, you've got uh, Benjamin Franklin, and he's doing experiments uh, with what's called a Leyden jar. Um, it's not actually a battery in any sense. We would today think of it as a capacitor, but he's able to store charge and he's able to release it and he releases it like a cannon battery so that's where we get the term battery from um, in 1791 we have a guy called Galvani um, and he is looking at the body and he realizes that we have electric charge in our bodies so this is where we start getting you know, bioelectrics things like that but the real breakthrough as far as I'm concerned in this era is um, isn't it isn't Galvani. It's not uh, Coulomb, who I mentioned earlier, uh, and this is the guy that comes up with electrostatic repulsion. It's Alessandro Volta. He is an Italian scientist, and in 1800, he sends this bizarre device over to London, uh, to the Royal Society, and that was the Royal Society was set up by um, the likes of Boyle and Newton in the 17th century, um, and it's a very august institution. By now, if you want to get your scientific stuff noticed, you send it to the Royal Society and they'll look it over and if they like it, you're made. Um, and Alessandro Volta sends this this pile of stuff. It's a load of zinc and copper sheets that are sort of soaked between um, sort of brine-soaked rags, and it's called the Voltaic pile, and it is the first battery. I mean, it's not a very good battery. And batteries don't really have a use or a purpose for another 100 years almost. It takes a while for us to actually get going with electricity. Um, you've got experiments, as I mentioned, with David, and David produces in 1802 the first incandescent light bulb. Um, but again, we're still waiting for you know, 50, 60 years before that really takes off. But just think about the names I'm mentioning here you know, Alessandro Volta, that's where we get volt from. So even the terminology we use today is sort of coming through that too long. Napoleon's big genius was André-Marie Ampère. He was a maths professor and he began experiments into electricity and he eventually came up with how electricity and magnetism relate, how current influences the circuit. So we have amps from Ampère. So this is really the birth of technologies that, again, we're not going to really use for another 50 odd years. it's very strange how the industrial revolution works. As I mentioned, people would sort of prioritize what they need at the time. So we've got coal, for example, I mean, that happens, but we don't have oil. Um, oil at the time is predominantly things like whale oil, which is why we've got a massive whaling industry. We don't have crude oil for decades. So just because these things are being invented uh, in the Napoleonic theory doesn't mean they'll have an immediate impact. But the impact of batteries, I mean, every single one of us has got a battery in our pocket these days with a mobile phone Um, and the batteries that we use in the mobile phone only came out in 1990 so we're looking at 200 years of development to finally get there but all the seeds are laid in the Napoleonic era
2: that's just incredible Uh, i've always wanted to know where the term battery came from and now i do
1: every day is a learning
2: day
1: (laughs) yeah it's benjamin franklin
2: and as you say just the the pedigree of the names that you're mentioning you can just kind of see what you're saying in terms of those seeds getting sown into the future one name that i do kind of associate with this period is what okay maybe a little bit before um but james watt um obviously very famous let's talk about steam engines and this is something that i kind of think of as it's just coming into sort of the the it's sort of there just beforehand and it kind of starts to develop during this period but nobody's developed that technology to anything like the extent that it can be used in the ways that we go on to associate it with
1: yeah well in science it's a funny thing you usually get this sort of odd lull so for example plastics we start getting plastics in the early 20th century but we don't see how plastics are used until after the second world war Um, and that's happening today I mean, we've, we've already got ability to actually cut and splice our genes Um, it's already won the nobel prize but no one's doing it yet it's going to be another 20 30 years before we've got designer you know essentially we've eradicated gene um gene diseases um but that will happen Uh, can i just
2: let me just chip in there because that's a really interesting point is that a a thing you know that that's likely to happen because i remember when it first came out i
1: mean anyone who's interested look up what CRISPR. Uh, yeah, that's CRISPR is, and you'll find all kinds of information. That that is absolutely going to happen. The other thing is graphene, um, and graphene. If, if you told a Victorian of what plastics would do and how it would change their world, they couldn't possibly comprehend it. The same thing will happen with us and graphene, um, which is essentially plastics. Only now we've got a sheet rather than a string. Um, we cannot imagine how that is going to change our world, but it's going to happen in 20, 30 years. So. These, that's how science works, essentially. You start seeing a little trickle through, but usually it's a while before things really take off. Are you with me, Zach?
2: Yeah, yes. Um, <laughs> my, my mind is blown. Um, so, my mind is blown. But uh, um, Sorry, yeah, I interrupted you mid-flow on the steam engine.
1: What, no problem at all. Um, so you're right. James Watt uh, is 1739 to 1819, and the steam engine is just before the Napoleonic era. And it's, it, he doesn't invent the steam engine. Um, so there's already things like the Newcomen engine. But what he does is he introduces condensers um, and he's working in mining. He's looking at steam engines that are stationary and they aren't moving because he wants to make mines more efficient. This is again, the birth of the industrial revolution. Um, and so we get the proper James in 1776. And of course he's inventing terms like horsepower as well. Um, Because that's how he is conceiving his world. Horsepower today probably doesn't really mean much to us, but we still use it as a measure. And of course, we do use watts as well as a measure. Um, And this is going to become the driving force for the next 100 years, essentially, because the first steam engine properly that's moving around uh, on tracks is Richard Trevithick's in 1804. But it's not until 1830 that we get Stevenson's rocket and we start getting the locomotive. But James Watts and steam engines, they're starting to be introduced into factories, particularly in, in the North. And there is opposition to it. Um, you know, we've got the Luddites trying to destroy these factories. I'm sure people have seen episodes of Sharp, for example, where people are trying to hurl these awful steam engines off of trucks and damage um, and things like that. Going to commit has nothing to do whatsoever with the Luddites. Um, Ned Ludd was a weaver. Uh, just before the Napoleonic era, who uh, one day some kids were hurling abuse at him, he got so mad that he sort of shook his machine uh, and it broke. He broke his weaving machine, and so it became a term that was associated with accidentally breaking your machine. If you have broken your weaving machine, you'd done a Ned Ludd. Um, and eventually, in 1810, when the Luddites really begin, they sort of appropriate this this Captain Ludd name. Um, it's nothing to do with he doesn't start the movement or anything like that um again sorry i'm drifting off into into sort of non-sequiturs here
2: not at all not at all um it's it's fascinating uh having recently had my phone break and been called a luddite by uh, a mutual friend of ours funnily enough andy Dorman, um <laughs> it's all taking on an additional <laughs> level of meaning um i love it uh yes so i mean this is the thing isn't it that people would love to kind of philosophize about how differently would the napoleonic wars have played out with the invention of the steam train. Um, but that's, that's a whole conversation for another time, I suspect. Um, it's all, I mean, also that's, that's
1: not going to happen because bear in mind that we don't have the, the steel processing that is required at this stage of technology as well. I mean, to produce the, the rails that you need for, uh, for a steam engine, for producing the boilers and everything like that, that isn't there yet. Technology isn't something that that we just sort of, you you slot it into something else. It's a combination of multiple things coming together at the same time. So I think those kind of speculative histories, it's fun, but it's not like civilization. You don't press a button, you discover (laughs) the railroad. It's all multiple things coming together at the same time.
2: This is a, a very, very good point. Can we just kind of pause for a second and, and consider the the war or the military implications of some of this technology? So sure. a lot of the, I mean, a lot of the time, and, and this came up in the inventions episode, didn't it? You know, we kind of associate conflict with great leaps forward in terms of technology. And I've often said, perhaps incorrectly, that quite often a driving force in, um, in inventions is actually conflict because things get developed for military purposes and then get kind of used more widely and an obvious one here would be the internet fundamentally i believe was invented by the us army as an internal commun- means of communication right um, um well i
1: mean i would say it was invented at certain um but uh, i mean the classic one i would use is gps gps is the um is officially owned by the united states military <laughs> So, you're actual GPS and not just a generic global positioning system, that is, that is Space Force who's carding that.
2: That's interesting. Um, My question essentially then is, do you see equivalents um, during this period? Do you see inventions that then go on to become fundamental? I mean, the one that people love to talk about is the rifle, but the rifle actually is around before the Napoleonic era, And the the one that everybody associates with Sharp is just kind of an an iteration of things that are already being developed. Are there any kind of standouts in terms of things that weren't around, are developed due to war, and then go on to become really, really significant in our lives?
1: I mean, it's it's an interesting one, because the Napoleonic era is one where you're starting to see the... so in 1730, for example, you start getting um, Harrison and the uh, the sea clock that's able to tell uh, longitude, and that is incredibly important for the British Navy because they're starting to be able to navigate the world. And the fact that we sort of are able to essentially discover pretty much the entire world and sort of start mapping it is really down to the, being able to tell the positions. But that all dates back to you know, a century earlier in the um, uh, the Shovel, uh, who's an admiral, crashing his entire fleet into the Isle of Scilly. So we get the sort of the tail end of that in terms of during the actual Napoleonic era itself. Of course, the big one for me is rocketry. Um, We start seeing the use of uh, of congreve rockets, um, not only for signalling but also not necessarily successfully um, in battle. And we see that, of course, in the War of 1812, which means that we get the rockets' red glare referenced in the Star-Spangled Banner. Uh, But again, that's the technology that sort of we discover, we find out about, it's kind of shelved and it only becomes important really in the second world war when we start seeing, um, first of all uh, Nazi Germany with Wernher von Braun, uh, but also you know those um, those inventions going on in California at the time with the groups. And of course that fuels the, the space race. Um, so that's something that sort of starts emerging in the present era. Um, I think the big change is really In terms of things like medicine, um, and people start thinking about medicine in other ways because you have to when there is this scale of conflict. You can't have your soldiers dying because you can't replace them. You need to start saving those soldiers, Um, and so people start thinking of things. We've mentioned obviously laughing gas, which can be used as an anaesthetic. Decent surgery practices, how to actually amputate someone's limbs and seal that up so that they can they can survive and they're all right all that's really going on in the Napoleonic era. Um, Rifles, yes, you've mentioned, but all of the military stuff, as far as I'm aware, and again, I'm not a military historian, is based on tactics that have already existed. So Napoleon, of course, is an artillery expert, and he comes up with the Grand Battery, things like that. But he is really the master because he builds on ideas that are already there. He's not particularly an innovator. In terms of people like uh, Arthur Wellesley, Duke Wellington, his innovations are more about sort of where you position your troops and things like that. The one thing that he's excellent at, uh, in my opinion, feel free to correct me because you are the expert, (laughs) is logistics. Yes. Um, He just seems to understand actually the importance of making sure that your army is fed and supplied, uh, particularly during the Peninsula campaign, and so it's my the iterations that you start seeing in the military are not so much uh, scientific and technological it's all on on basic principles that doesn't mean that there aren't examples where the military suddenly spiraled out into an area we never expected um, a great example is uh, in Sweden um, so during the Napoleonic era there was a young artillery officer he was looking for a place to position his guns to guard the entrance to Stockholm because Stockholm is basically in the center of an archipelago. And so he was on this tiny island um, and he was looking around a village called Itaby. And he was a geologist, he just had a a little hobby. He found this strange black rock, didn't know what it was. Uh, He sent it over to a friend of his called Johan Gadlin. Uh, Gadlin began looking at it and he discovered that the rock didn't contain one new element. Or two new elements, or three new elements, or four new elements, it contained a whole bunch. And this was the discovery of what we call the rare earth elements. In fact, four of them uh, yttrium, erbium, itter- it, um, terbium, and ytterbium are all named after this tiny village called Ytterby because that's where the black rock was found. Um, and rare earth elements power your computers, your laptops, you know, your mobile phones. They are incredibly important. It's the reason that China is investing heavily in Africa, because they need circuits in the future. So all of that does come from the military, just kind of in a roundabout way. In terms of direct practical discoveries from sort of conflict, it's not so much happening in this area. Everything's being built around it.
2: This is, I know I've said it already, but this is fascinating. And I'm just going to give a little teeny tiny spoiler to something that we will discuss later, because you're talking here about how, you know, a lot of this technology feeds through to the modern day and you know your passion and your knowledge is coming through very clearly here and folks if you want to know more about Kit's work we are going to discuss his latest book Racing Green which is coming out um, in the very near future uh, so you are going to want to s- stay tuned for that because Kit's just a master at this kind of stuff I want to just kind of throw a, what looks like a hand grenade in the notes uh, into this conversation computers now (laughs) my association with computers admittedly and this is a shameful admission comes from the imitation game and watching benedict cumberbatch as alan Turing doing that kind of autistic um kind of genius really very very well um but you're about to tell me that the first computer of sorts comes from the napoleonic era right
1: I am going to tell you exactly that. So uh, I should point out, by the way, the Bletchley Park stuff with Alan Turing. Alan Turing was amazing. He wasn't the only person that was working on that computer. I mean, Bletchley Park was a factory unto itself. There was a a huge project going on there. Um, All kinds of things were happening. But a computer is essentially a, um, a calculator, a very advanced calculator where you're turning yes and no's into a code. And that code allows you to follow a sort of switch and program and you can actually execute whatever you're you're doing. Um, So don't think of computers as this sort of magic box where stuff comes out, it's just maths. And the guy that really sort of came up with this was Charles Babbage. So he invents in 1819, which is just in there as Napoleonic, what's called the difference engine. And it's basically a series of wheels and gears to do calculations. Um, It doesn't work very well, Um, he builds a proper one in 1822, um, just after Napoleon dies, and the the British government are funding him. I mean, they're giving him, I think, about £4,000 to continue his research into this. One of the first people he actually recruits to help him with this um, is actually Lord Byron's daughter, um, and her name is Ada Lovelace. So if you ever see the mention of Ada Lovelace anywhere in terms of computing, that's where it comes from. Ada Lovelace and Charles Babbage are doing the first calculations. Now, as I mentioned, it doesn't work very well. The science kind of gets sort of shelved essentially for about a hundred years, but the theory is sound. I mean, this is the basics of the computer. And so when we get to the second world war and people need to crack codes and it's not possible to do it with your, with your sort of your mind, you've got to actually sort of, it's way too complicated for a human. We start introducing computers. Um, and so again, it's one of those things that sort of takes a while to, to come full circle. Interestingly, there's actually even a, a weird connection uh, between computers and that uh, other Napoleonic invention of the battery, because the guy that dis- discovers the lithium-ion battery, he's called John Goodenough. I think he's 99 now; he's still alive. Um, and John Goodenough is the guy that comes up with computer RAM as well. So. <laughs> We've sort of combined the two Napoleonic things together, uh, and he won the Nobel Prize a couple of years back um, because he's just changed all of our lives. So all of these inventions, they're, they're disparate strands, but you can see they weave together, not necessarily in the next 10 years or 20 years. It could take 100 years, but everything comes together from the napoleonic
2: It's remarkable. It's just... Uh, my mind is slightly blown. <laughs> Apologies for these sort of banal comments about how incredible and fascinating this is. But it, it really just is. Next up on this list, we have biology. Now, uh, again, sort of the, the, the imbecile, the, the technological and, and scientific sort of dunce in me goes, well, mm, Darwin. But there are, of course, precursors to Darwin. There's, there are a few um, kind of theories knocking around before uh, darwin um, releases his book based in part on his research on on the Beagle. So talk us through that. Um, and there's obviously the vaccination thing that we'll we'll come on to in a second. But talk us through uh,
1: Well, you're absolutely right. I mean darwin is is post uh, Napoleonic era. Um, i can't i can't I can't squeeze him in as much as <laughs> I'd love to. Um, but the precursor to him, the main precursor is a Frenchman called Jean-Baptiste Pierre-Antoine de Monet, Chevalier de Lamarck. Um, So Lamarck is a naturalist. Um, That's what they called a biologist back then. Um, Born in 1744, dies 1829. And he comes up with his own theory uh, called Lamarckism. And Lamarckism is basically along the right lines, but backwards. So the, the classic example that people use to illustrate Lamarckism, and this isn't actually one that he uses in his book. He actually uses it for something else, um, is the
2: giraffe. I was going to so say. So how yeah, did a
1: so. how did a giraffe get to the point where it's eating leaves from the tree? And Darwin says that in um, sort of in natural selection means that people with with slightly longer necks, whenever else that, that's that's sort of preferable, and so their genetic they, they they follow on their children and obviously their necks get bigger and bigger and bigger um, basically because nature is selecting them nature is killing off people who don't have long necks Lamarck is slightly different his idea is people are looking at these leaves and they're, they're straining their necks to get to them and because they're straining their necks their necks are getting longer um, and the idea is that over time over, over several generations because of this neck straining the necks Extend to the point that you get the giraffe. Now this isn't right. If I, you know, a, a classic example is if I start lifting weights and I get incredibly muscular. If I if I have a child, that child will not be a mini Arnold Schwarzenegger. Um, <laughs> you, you you don't you don't transmit the changes to your body through your genes. Um, and so Lamarck got it the wrong way around, but he is a precursor to Darwin and. He influenced a whole bunch of people. People tried to prove Lamarckism for the next hundred odd years. And so he's a really useful front runner for essentially the theory of evolution.
2: Okay. Vaccination. We (laughs) did. We did. uh, I mean, I love Lamarck and and Darwin, um, but I've always kind of scratched my head. And and this is sort of the arrogance of sort of 20th century knowledge, isn't it? But I sort of looked at it and went, "Mm, but that doesn't work. Um, But of course uh, that's because we know.
1: At, at this time we had miasma theory people thought yeah. that uh, the bad smells transmitted illness yeah. uh, rather than germs we didn't know about that people thought that when you burnt something that was there was some kind of magical substance in everything that was causing the fire it wasn't a chemical reaction so you know i can kind of understand where he's coming from but it's, it's all part of the learning process
2: It is. You've mentioned germs. Let's stay with germs. Vaccination. This is something that we did touch on, uh, wasn't it, Uh, back in that that Greatest Invention episode? And 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 vaccination
1: is is smacking in the Napoleonic era. So this is 1796. and Edward Jenner is developing the first true vaccine. So there was a process um, to inoculate people against getting smallpox. It was called uh, variolation. It dates back thousands of years from India. Sorry, about a thousand years from India. Um, and essentially you were taking some some smallpox, incredibly dangerous. It was killing you know hundreds and thousands of people, and you infect people with them and basically very weak in dose, and you get some immunity to, to small smallpox. Um Jen's leap is that he looks at cowpox, which is kind of related. And notices this is that essentially maids aren't getting a cow maids who are milking cows, aren't Uh, are getting cowpox, but they're not getting smallpox. And so he takes some cowpox, he gives it to uh, a small child and that vaccinates the child against smallpox. He then exposes the child to smallpox and and they don't die, they don't get it. Um, This is a game changer because it starts teaching people about vaccines and obviously vaccines today have saved millions and possibly even billions of lives. Um, We've got it obviously at the moment with the COVID situation, Vaccination is reducing the risk, it's keeping people safe. Even if you get the disease, even if you get the virus, sorry, your, your chances of survival are much greater. Your chances of giving it to someone else are much lower. Um, but with smallpox, today we don't have it. Smallpox exists in a lab somewhere, that's it. We have wiped out one of the killer diseases of the 18th century. And that is all because of Edward Jenner, and that is all because of what's happening in the Napoleonic era.
2: Yes, I'm glad that you kind of explained to people, just in case any of my listeners are sceptical about the vaccine, about why it is important to look into... Sorry, yeah, what, I couldn't
1: resist. No, the go out. for it. I,
2: I I welcome it, genuinely. Um, why it is important for people to go and read up on the science behind vaccination and get yourself vaccinated, not just to protect yourselves, but to protect others. Because, you know, hello, global pandemic isn't over yet. Um, uh, I mean... The, Next up on this list, you've got circulation and surgery. So are you about to tell me that a proper understanding of how the circulatory system works comes from this period? Because I thought that was a Greek
1: concept. No, that's mu- no I'm not going to do that. That's much earlier. That's Harvey. Um, and Harvey okay. is the 1600s. Um, okay. Actually understanding of how the body works. I mean, Harvey, Harvey got his idea because basically he realised that if you held over that little vein in your hand, your hand starts turning white and obviously the blood's not going there or you, you tie a string around your finger and your finger turns white and it will start swelling up and things like that. So we've known about that for about about 200 years when it comes to the Napoleonic era, um, probably a little bit less. Um, so circulation itself, not a new thing, but actually understanding how the body works in terms of what the organs are doing, how, how the blood is actually flowing the circulatory system, we're starting to get a much clearer picture in the Napoleonic era. Um, and that is really a tail end product of the enlightenment. But as you mentioned, we start getting things like proper surgical techniques and we get anesthesia. I mentioned Davy and laughing gas, but anesthesia in the Western world doesn't really take off until probably about the 1840s, I think it is, um, 1840s, 1850s. So it's, it's not happening properly in the Napoleonic era. But in Japan, um, I I'm, this counts as Napoleonic as far as I'm concerned, even though Japanese were not involved whatsoever in the Napoleonic Wars. Agreed. Um, uh, uh, Hanaoka Tseushu, um, I hope I pronounced that correct, was a doctor. And the doctor was still trading vaguely with, uh, with the Japanese. He got hold of some medical techniques from the Western world. He combined them with traditional medicine, and he worked out how to knock people out. And so the Japanese were doing surgery under general anesthetic, um, during the napoleonic era um, and he was doing this from sort of about 18 I think it's 1805 1806 right up until his death in 1835 and he's operating on cancers he's dealing with breast cancer and removing people's bladders under general anesthesia um, during this period so if you thought about treating cancers was was a sort of a very modern thing no that
2: is happening in the napoleonic era for what seems like the 4000th time in this episode my mind has just been blown because that's an absolute game changer in terms of treating deep tissue um issues that's that's I mean, not a technical term that last it's bit not, but... it's
1: not, it is not a technical term at all um <laughs> yeah, it really isn't sorry sorry <laughs> sorry to just yeah. i'm like uh, my inner pharmacist is kind of going oh my god no um it, it's uh, so we're looking at removal of organs for example T- Uh, organ is made up of tissues and tissues, things like that. So um, we are are looking at sort of major surgery. And that's always a problem for two reasons. One is that you get any open wound at this point, and it's going to get infected. So we're looking at sort of waiting for germ theory, and we're waiting for uh, aseptic technique. And that isn't quite in the preonic era. It's starting to emerge. People are starting to think about it but we're really waiting for the surgeons in the 1850s. So unfortunately, if you are injured, at, you know, the Battle of Waterloo or whatever, you're not gonna have proper you know, antiseptics. That is not available to you. And in terms of anesthesia as well, again, there are some sort of minor sort of considerations and things like that. People have started to think about it, but you're just gonna to have to, uh, to bite the bullet as it were. You are gonna have to, chew on something and hope that they are gonna cut your arm off very, very quickly and get rid of it. Um, And we've got surgeons who are coming up with wonderful techniques about sort of, almost like putting their arms circularly around your limb and sort of speed speed hacking to sort of slice your limb off how fast they can get it because they need to do it quickly. Um, And so it's not until the the sort of the mid-Victorian era that we actually start getting that medical revolution. But again, the seeds, this initial thoughts, because you've got to remember that these surgeons who are come out with these pioneering techniques, trying new things like antiseptics, trying new things like using ether to, to knock people out and, and operate on them. They're learning their techniques from somebody. They're, they're going to medical school. And the people who are teaching them at medical school are people from the Napoleonic era. They're planting the seeds there. So we probably can't claim all of this stuff than a pony on Akira, but we can certainly say that, that it establishes the building blocks.
2: And the next mind-blowing one is photography, um, which was a particularly <laughs> a surprise when you raised this, because um, one of the particularly well-shared images on Twitter is of a is it called a lithotint tint of um, Wellington. And he's a very, he's a very, very old man, and I happen to know that it's one of the most prized possessions that. Wellington family owned to this day. It is sort of a, a very early version of a, a photograph of Wellington. But you're going to tell me that, uh, I guess, uh, kind of along the same lines, you know, the building blocks for that are Napoleonic in nature.
1: Yeah. So the photography, the photography as we know it, the first proper photograph is 1826. So it just misses out because Napoleon is obviously dies a couple of years earlier. But 1802 um, and we have Thomas Wedgwood and he is the son of Josiah Wedgwood of pottery fame. And Thomas Wedgwood is looking at how to actually capture images. He worked with Humphrey Davy and he is able to actually capture images on glass plates. So this is the first photographer, the proper photograph. The problem they have is they can't fix them. So the, the, the images fade. And that means that it, they're not really considered sort of the proper discovery, but people are trying to do it. They're looking, at, they're looking at the world in a new way. And again, I think that is the real lesson of the Napoleonic era. It's not so much the fact that people are making these breakthroughs and they're instantly having a, a result because there's so much else going on in that era. You know, this is a, an age literally of Europe at war for you know, huge swathes of, of 20, 30 years. So people have got other things on their minds, um, but they're leaving the scenes, they're leaving those moments and it's people are starting to think about the world differently. They're not thinking about how can I have a great portrait anymore? They're thinking, how can I use science to actually capture what I really look like? And so all of these sort of smart thinking, this way of thinking, this approach to actually how do we do science, who is doing science, is moving us out of the Enlightenment age, It's moving us into the Industrial Revolution. And that is why the Napoleonic era is so critical for science.
2: So you've regaled us with a a whole series of brilliant (laughs) um, inventions and, and the way in which they go on to have incredible impact. And this is an unfair question for me to spring on you, but I happen to know you well enough to know that you've usually got an utterly bonkers story that you can just pull out of a hat, it seems, and, and throw into a conversation. Um, and you've got lots of people during this period who are experimenting. Obviously, are there any kind of wacky things people that will people will listen to and just roar with laughter in terms of what you know? It, people sort of trying to do their best, but actually doing something utterly bonkers um, that's way off the mark. I mean.
1: <laughs> there are so many people who have got this these brilliant ideas that sort of never go anywhere. I always feel really sorry for I mentioned him very briefly, a guy called Carl Gillen Schuler, who discovers so many different things. He discovers chlorine and he discovers oxygen. And every time um, he he is ignored. So one time he publishes it in a book, but the publisher delays it by a year. And so, someone else comes up with the idea in that year and he misses out. Another time, his letter goes missing in the post when he's telling people. So, he ends up being credited with absolutely nothing uh, whatsoever that he discovers except a color of green, Um, (laughs) um, which is just, just, I mean, it's, it's sort of really depressing. And Sheila's green is this color he comes up with. Um, and it becomes the rage of the era. It's this beautiful green color. Um, The problem is it's made from uh, copper arsenite. So it's got arsenic in it and it's incredibly toxic. But Napoleon happened to absolutely love uh, Sheila's green. And so in St. Helena, he had his room painted bright green with this horrible arsenic um, wallpaper. And so some people often mention the stomach the stomach cancer that he dies of. I know that there is some sort of debate about Napoleon's death. You're probably already covered this one, but we do know that arsenic exposure is linked to stomach cancer. So it's entirely possible that this brilliant scientist, Carl Vilanchila, who came up with so many things and was constantly ignored, the one thing that he is credited with, the one thing that he is remembered with could have had a role in the death of Napoleon himself
2: oh there's a bombshell there's a bombshell (laughs) um there's so much to discuss there isn't there not least because there is this ongoing discussion about to what extent was there a history of stomach cancer because his dad certainly um certainly died of of stomach cancer and he it said that actually he had this huge fear but i'm glad that you've emphasized there look people it wasn't the british trying to force feed him poison and it's not as though napoleon was going around licking his wallpaper however Yes, unquestionably, um, arsenic was found in his hair. Um, it's also worth pointing out that I believe George III was also a fan, and he had higher levels of um, <laughs> arsenic in his hair when he died. Um, so it's not necessarily the arsenic poisoning that killed him.
1: Um, yeah. And it's but, all because of this, sweet, this Swedish guy, Carl Wilhelm who was otherwise ignored for all of the brilliant discoveries he made. Um, Isaac Asimov, who was a huge sort of science history buff as well as a great science writer, science fiction writer, he called him Hard Luck Sheila um, because I think sort of eight or nine things that would have sort of today would win the Nobel Prize that he came up with, and he is not credited with any of them. I mean, he just constantly fails.
2: Some people just really don't have the luck, do they? Um, Kit, this has been utterly brilliant. I knew it would be. I don't know why it took me so long for us to organize this. Um, but the fact that it did take me this long to organize it ended up being quite opportune because people will have listened to you that have realized the depth of your knowledge, and hopefully they'll want to know more about your work beyond the Napoleonic era. And you have a new book out, don't you? Racing Green. So, what I want to do is just hand the mic over to you and give you the chance to tell people about. it's all about i'm personally a huge fan because it's connected with formula one and that's very much my thing um but give people a a sense of what the book's about how you put it together because the process behind it is fascinating in itself uh, and infect people with the enthusiasm that i know kind of oozes through you when it comes to this Um,
1: i've been a lifelong formula one fan i love motorsport and. One day I was working out in uh, in the gym and um, my trainer said, "Look, I can't make the next session. Can you come to this client's house? We'll work out in his private gym, um, and then head off from there." I say, "No problem." It turns out he's a race car driver. We get talking about his cars. He shows me these million pound cars that he's got in his garage, um, and we start discussing, you know, the whole the whole history of science. And I realised that there's this strange thing that we, we there's so much science that happens in Formula One and other motorsports that actually spirals out into our world. So for example, um, Formula One uh, teams have designed how to cribs to transport babies to, some, to, to Great Ormond Street safely. They've worked on aerodynamics to prevent cold air flowing out of fridge freezers and Tesco's. Um, they've pretty much helped every single winter Olympics and cycling team that Britain's produced in the last 10 years win their gold medals. And I started looking at all of the spin-off technologies how is this going to help fight climate change? I mentioned graphene earlier, but we've also got tyres that are being made out of dandelions. We've got electric uh, cars coming out and being able to actually test batteries at you know, 200 odd miles an hour rather than sort of pittering around the, a town centre is incredibly useful because that's at the extreme. And then we can work backwards rather than working forwards and building up. So I put a book together that essentially looks at all of those spin off technologies that come from motorsports. And that's from right and uh, sort of back in the Victorian era and the first ever races in France. Uh, I didn't realize the first ever proper race car was electric um, setting a land speed record in 1899, um, right through to the modern day. And I've visited various Formula One teams and Formula E teams, I've looked at Extreme i I've gone around the world. I went up the Amazon to look at where rubber comes from, which is a story unto itself. And it's all in a book called Racing Green, um, which came out uh, in the uh, start of March in the UK, comes out in May in the United States. Um, and please read it. It's got nothing to do with the Napoleonic era, but I hope you'll like it.
2: Absolutely. And, and who's the publisher so that people can go direct to the publisher and get it rather than just doing the classic Amazon uh, it's, thing? It's
1: published by Bloomsbury. Um, same people who publish Harry Potter.
2: So you to find it there quite easily. Uh, and it's presumably it's available for pre-order already?
1: It's available for pre-order and you can have it in, uh, in hardback or you can have an audio book coming out as well.
2: This is great news. And um, the other thing people are going to want to do is stay in touch with you and your work. I happen to know you mentioned about the, the Royal Institute. Um, I happen to know that you're doing a talk for the Royal Institute of Science in the fairly near future, aren't you? Just tell people about how they can kind of stay up to date with you and your developments and also attend that talk.
1: I mean, I'm really excited about that. I get to follow in the footsteps of, of Humphrey Davy and Michael Faraday. Um, so on 7th of March, I'm giving an, uh, a lecture at the Royal Institution in London uh, in person, but you can also watch online, it's uh, it's pay what you can afford. Um, so please come down if you if you can make it, if you can't tune in, I think it's 7 p.m. till 8 p.m. Um, UK time. And if you wanna find out more about what I'm doing, where I'm going, all that kind of stuff, I'm on Twitter at chemistry kit, all one word. Um, Or you can go onto my website, which is kitchatman.co.uk.
2: Folks, I'm going to put the links in the description, follow them. uh, There's a little descriptor underneath this thing where you're listening to the the podcast. Just click them, right? And, And go find out more about this incredible individual and his travels that seemingly just span the entire world and the discoveries that he makes along the way. Kit, I knew this would be a masterclass. It absolutely was. Thank you so much for joining me.
1: No, thank you for having me.
2: Folks, as ever, do me a favour, remember to like and subscribe, share the episode and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. As ever, a huge thank you to my Patreon supporters whose generosity keep this show going. So a particular shout out and much love too my patreon supporters my emperor level patrons mark stuce and jc kaiser my marshal patrons marcus crib and todd campbell my commander patrons ger brown liam telfer jane davis matt bone bob burnham stephen Gillen, and michael guest and my mentioned in dispatches patrons alexandra leon alistair campbell grieve andy meeking beatrice de graf brendan teeling colin fieldhouse ed coss bruins girl gareth copeland jeff maple hugh brannan James Bevan, Jim Deary, Jim Getz, John Haynes, Josh Keeney, Lucy Tatner, Lynn Dawson, Mark Dewhurst, Mark Anscombe, Rob Griffith, Rory Muir, Ross Flowers, Ryan Diamond, Rob Cothlan and Stephen Coulson. If you're interested in learning how you can become a patron and the benefits and the perks of each tier, check the links in the description, it'll take you through, the, through to the Patreon page and you'll find all the details you need. I'll be back very soon. But until then, I'm Zach White. This has been The Napoleon Assist. Take care of yourselves, my friends. Stay well. Stay safe. Stay kind. And as always, thank you for listening.